Why are you living in the world as if you were still obligated by it? Why do you have to? I'm going to take a risk here. I remember talking with one of my neighbors. It was 2020 in the summer. And they were out for a walk. And we were in our yard. And even though nobody was supposed to get within six feet of each other, we, we were talking. And they had their little puppy. Their dog was kind of cute. My kids played with the puppy. Even though I'd read somewhere that apparently... COVID-19 can be transferred via dog, I guess. I don't know. What do you believe? And the gentleman, what he said to me was, I don't really want to get inoculated. But my doctor says I'm in a risk category. So I guess I have to. Why do you have to? Why do you have to? Now, I think for him it was, well, because otherwise I might die. But it really doesn't matter. You can plug in any other thing that you want. It doesn't have to be about the last three years. It doesn't have to be life or death. Why are you living as though you have to do anything other than worship Jesus and love your neighbor. Seek the good of others around you. That's the question Paul is driving at us here. And what he says in chapter 2 of Colossians is that the idea that you have to do something that isn't written in the Bible will always be a trick to ensnare your conscience and steal from you the confidence that Christianity is here to give you. I also, in the past week, had a conversation with Dr. Adam Kuntz. He's formerly a Fort Wayne Seminary professor. He's now out in Denver as a pastor out there. He's an old friend of mine. He's probably the smartest man alive, as far as I can tell. And I asked him, I said, why is it that as a Lutheran Christian pastor, I feel kind of embarrassed telling people they should come to my church? I meet people in the Rockford area. I take some classes in Japanese wrestling. It's called jiu-jitsu. And and I run into people from time to time there who don't know I'm a pastor, but they know me. And they find out I'm a pastor. And the last thing I would do emotionally is say, you should come to my church. I asked him, why is that? What's going on in my soul? It makes me think I have to keep distance and not offend them and protect them from somehow thinking I'm selling them something. I also asked him, why is it that I can't just say to them, you should come to my church because if you do, you will have a peace in your soul the world can't give you. You ever said that to your neighbor about St. Paul? I've heard This morning, twice. It's so wonderful. 
I've heard twice from people who were not here for a week or two. And they said, I was so hungry. I couldn't wait to get back. What is that about? I'll guarantee you it's about the freedom of conscience from knowing that you stand under the grace of a God who loves you and has proven it to you in the one man, Jesus Christ. And that the power of the Bible, the text, what we're about to look at to not only tell you this, but to make you be this is almighty and godly. And that nothing in this age can stand against it unless you let it tell you otherwise. And so again, Colossians 2, for all the things it's going to say, it wants you to walk out of here free. Why, when I got here, St. Paul, some of you are new since then, but do you remember? At the end of the service, they used to say, go in peace, serve the Lord. And you'd say, thanks be to God. And it's not like that's wrong. But I changed it to what? Go in peace. You are free. You're free. Don't live as one who's obligated. Colossians 2 starts on page 983 of your pew Bible. I really encourage you to get it out and follow along line by line. I encourage you to take a note. Grab one of those little cards in the pew in front of you. Take one note today. In fact, I'll tell you right up front what to write down. I'll tell you in a minute. But get that card out to take a note. Go put it on your fridge. Go put it on a bulletin board, your mirror. I don't care where. Put it in the front of your car, just not over the speed limit marker thing or the speed speedometer, right? But put it in the car. Here's what you should write this week. I'll tell you even what verse it is. Let me find it first, right? It's, it's Colossians 2, verse 14. Just write down, he... Nailed it to the cross. He nailed it to the cross. Go put that somewhere you can see this week. You won't regret it. Chapter 2 begins again on page 983. Verse 1 says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those in Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. We kind of mentioned this last week. We don't exactly know where Paul is writing from. Probably prison in Rome. He's writing not only to uh, Colossa, but probably also to Ephesus. The two letters kind of go together. Ephesus is the big city in Asia Minor. Colossus is the little town just outside the big city. I mean, Chicago, Rockford, not exactly not that. I mean, it's, it's kind of close. Uh, you know, neither were as big as Chicago and Rockford are. But for that world, that's what it was. Laodicea also, smaller suburban area outside of Ephesus. But, but a big town, big town. Okay? And both the church at Colossa and at Laodicea, they were planted by Christian preachers who were not, to our knowledge, apostles. We saw last week that Colossa had a church planted by a guy named Epaphras. So anyway, Paul, writing from prison, having never been there, says to them, I deeply care about you. 
He's going to say what he, what he wants because of that care in just a moment. But also, I, I want to throw this one out here just for fun. There's a good chance that there was a letter sent to Laodicea, right with the book, or the letter sent to Colossa and the letter sent to Ephesians. Where'd it go? And we don't know. Did you know? Really, I'm on a tangent here, but I think it's fun. You know, there's four letters written to the Corinthian church. There was the first letter that was written. Then there was 1 Corinthians that we have. Then there's the third letter that's written. Then there's 2 Corinthians, which is the fourth letter. Where'd they go? They were lost to history. What does that mean? It means they weren't scripture. Anyway, uh, I... That's right there in this verse. That's why I said it. Laodicea probably got a letter. He cares for them. What? Verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged. That word encouraged is the word paraclete. Comforter. Built up in the Holy Spirit. He wants their hearts to be built up in the Holy Spirit, being knit together in love. I don't knit, but I know that when you do, what you do is you take a thread and you make it hook and hook and hook and hook and hook and hook and hook. And so it's all tied together and it can't be pulled apart anymore. At least it shouldn't be. He wants you, plural, us, to be encouraged by the Holy Spirit so that we're linked together in love. That means loyalty right? Loyalty, that means commitment, so that to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. It's a mouthful, but it's two statements, right? Uh, that are both three things and then Jesus. So, so the first one is uh, the riches of the assurance of understanding and the second one is the knowledge of the mystery of God. Those are the same thing. The riches of the assurance of understanding and the knowledge of the mystery of God. Notice knowledge and understanding. They go together. And they're in Proverbs 1 verse 2, by the way, for an aside throw. Knowledge and understanding. The understanding is of assurance. That means conviction. That means certainty. The words, the same word that is used to mean the firmament, the sky, like it never moves. It's always there. Understanding of the firmness of wealth, wealth, riches, yes, riches. What kind? Not gold, not silver, but like I said a moment ago, peace of soul. Understanding of the assurance of the riches that are the knowledge, that's what's in your head, that's the story that you know of the mystery of God. You already told us last week what this mystery is, is that Jesus is inside of you is that Jesus has entered you to make you his own and he's never going to let go. He says, my heart is concerned that you would be encouraged with each other, knit together, knowing Jesus is in you so you would have assurance to stand. And of course he lists then, it is Christ in the rest of the verse. That is, it's who Jesus is. It's what Jesus has done. It's what he's coming again to do. Does it matter that you do not murder Yes. Does it matter that you do not commit adultery? Yes. But those things don't make you Christians. Jesus claims you as a Christian. And that's why you would learn to see murder, not so good for my neighbor. Adultery, not so good for anybody. Yeah. And so on. Verse three, 
Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So there again, Proverbs 1, verse 2, understanding, knowledge, wisdom, they go together. Wisdom is to be able to see. Knowledge is to be able to know. That power is in Christ. We're going to talk in a moment about the wisdom of the world, which actually exists, right? Like you can learn how to make an engine run and it works a certain way. And that is true, but it's not nearly so powerful as the hidden mystery of how Jesus walked on water, of how he turned water into wine, of how he let us kill him and didn't stay dead. That's a different kind of wisdom. It's hidden in him and it belongs to you now. That doesn't mean you get to wield it like a massive superpower. It means you get to wield it like a massive superpower by asking Jesus to wield it for you. By knowing that God hears your prayers and will bend creation to strengthen you in your conviction. Of course, underneath his glory and his truth. Yes? Verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. There is false teaching. There are liars whose consciences are seared. There are things that seem like they're right and feel like they're clever and make you feel like you're wrong, but they're in fact tricks, illusions. And so he's warning you, learn what you know from the Bible to be true and don't let anybody take it from you no matter how clever they seem to be. Verse 5, more about his not being present with them and caring about them. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Just take that as encouragement to them. Verse 6, Therefore, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. This is a theme that will show up again and again in Paul's letters. He'll say it once in almost every letter. Walk in Jesus. Or walk in the way of the gospel. I guess that's law. It's what you're supposed to do, but that's really not the point. The point is that you would feel strong. If you're going to walk as you receive Jesus, that means you're going to walk under grace. That means you're going to walk in salvation. It doesn't mean you're going to save yourself. It means you're going to walk as someone who knows, I'm saved. I mean, we could say it like the Baptist. I mean, like the Bible, I'm born again. It doesn't mean you have to believe in crazy charismania, but it does mean you have to believe that you believe. And that makes you different. It makes you alive. And like I said a moment ago, it promises you peace of conscience, peace of soul. I don't mean the eagles, peaceful, easy feeling. I mean the knowledge of the mystery that God's bought you. So no matter what the feelings are, you can tell yourself a different story that's bigger, truer, and mightier than those feelings. You might even repent of the lying feelings. Lord Jesus, I know my heart's lying to me right now. 
I'm going to let you take care of that. Guarantee you that feels better than wallowing in the muck. Walk under grace. You're owned. That's good news. Verse 7, rooted and built up a tree planted by streams of water, built up like a house with foundations, right? Established in the faith. Notice the definite article, the faith. Not faith like how you think, how you feel, how you believe, but the faith, what you believe. What has been delivered to you. He is risen. Hallelujah. That's the faith. Huh? Established in the faith just as you were taught. Right? This is something that has come from beyond us. And it will continue long after us. Abounding in thanksgiving. Of course, gratitude. One of the hardest things to manufacture. I'll tell you. But I can also tell you this. Just saying hallelujah when you don't want to becomes a very good habit. Do I need to talk about coffee again? It's been a while. I haven't spilled as much coffee recently, but I did a big one about a week and a half ago, all over my lap. And golly, did it not come out right away. I did not say hallelujah right away. Bit my tongue. And then I said hallelujah. Now, did I really have gratitude deep, deep in my heart? No, I didn't. Not even a little bit. I was pretty pissed off. But I also knew that God meant it for my good. And that's the point of that practice. Was it, I, I had to believe at that moment, it's for my good. It's for my good. Okay, fine. It's for my good. doesn't feel like it's for my good, but it's for my good. That's the power of Christianity. That is the strength that you have in the face of every single evil that comes your way. Now, maybe not spilling coffee in a lap doesn't bother you that much. Maybe it's some other thing that happens. I've had a number of other things that have happened to me in the last month and a half that blew my mind. Ask me about it. I'll tell you after church. I couldn't believe Jesus let that happen to me. It's for my good. It's for my good. It's for my good. Rooted in the faith, abounding in thanksgiving. It's going to work out. Verse 8. So guard yourself against those who say otherwise, right? See to it that no one takes you captive. Don't be captured. By what? There's a list here. Philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elementary principles of the world. So again, most of these things here aren't all bad. Philosophy, it means the love of wisdom. It means to ask questions and find out what truth is. That can be a good thing until it takes your mind captive with lies, and it's a bad thing. Empty deceit. Again, this is plausible arguments. This is things that seem true but aren't. Wordsmithing and, and sophistry. Human tradition. Human tradition is not a problem by itself. A tradition is just something that came from before you. You received it and you pass it on. And I'll, I'll tell you, our dentists aren't at church Right now, they were both at, at church earlier this morning, but we have two dentists in the congregation. One of my absolute favorite traditions in my family, I mean, my whole family, our whole life, this was a tradition for us. We brushed our teeth. And you know, there's families out there that don't brush their teeth. It's not a tradition for them. I mean, it impacts your teeth at a certain point. It isn't that the tradition's wrong. Is it, What it's going to get to is that thinking that the tradition is the word of God. That's, that's the problem. So philosophy, empty deceit, tradition, and the elementary principles of the world, or just the elements of the world, earth, wind, fire, water, which for the Greek mind are archetypes of all powers and principalities, all levels of angels and demons, all the things you cannot see. Paul says, don't let anyone take you captive with these things and not according to Christ. 
So I just mentioned brushing your teeth. It's a great example. Guess what happens if you don't brush your teeth? You get gingivitis. Yeah. And eventually your teeth start to rot, especially if you eat a sugar diet. And eventually your teeth fall out. You got to have wooden teeth put in. Got to have to, have to, right? You got to do it. And then what happens, you know? Now it's not as great as it could be. So what? That's really Paul's question today. Now I'm not saying don't brush your teeth. I kind of like mine. But if you would confuse having dirty teeth with being a Christian, then you're going to mess up Christianity. If someone comes into this church and has no teeth and we treat them differently than us, we have become evil judges with wicked thoughts in our hearts. Do you see the distinction there? It doesn't mean if someone comes in with bad teeth and you can help them learn to brush their teeth, you shouldn't do it. It's just don't confuse the two. Certainly don't let things that are not the religion of the Bible become your religion. He's going to talk about more in a moment, but we've gone through this with Romans. A lot of this has to do with Judaizing, with taking Judaism and making it a requirement for Christians, you know, like Sabbath worship. He's going to get to that in a few moments here. But uh, according to elementary principles, mindsets of men, no, you want to be captured by the word of God. Because Christ, verse 9, in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You want to be captured by Jesus because he's God. Yes. And verse 10, you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So last week, chapter one, it's Jesus is inside of you. Now, chapter two, Jesus has filled you inside of him. Can you see the marvelous history? There was one man and we're all pieces of him. We broke off with all of his corruption built inside of us. Now there's a second man. And that second man has no corruption. And that second man has grabbed you by the hair and shoved you into his heart. So that while you still carry about the body of that first man, you are born again into the soul of that second man. And just as his body didn't stay in the grave, neither shall yours. Yeah. He's filled you in him. He is then, rest of verse 10, the head of all rule and authority, arche and exousias in the Greek, arche, like the highest level of something, right? And he really is talking about here the unseen elements of the world. I mean, you can talk about the president of the United States, or you can talk about the conspiracy theorists, and you can talk about this, and you can talk about that, but up above them all, there's demons. And Jesus has triumphed over them too. There's nothing that he doesn't hold in the palm of his hand right now in order to control for you. So that you would walk through this world knowing this world no longer obligates you. This world's gonna be thrown into the fire. You're gonna walk through the fire, into the water, out of the water, into everlasting life. He's gonna talk about that water here in verses 11 and following. It's gonna get, it's gonna get a little Lutheran here for a moment. In Jesus, in him, you also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of flesh 
by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. In which, that is baptism, you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Let's go back and look at that again. So, in Jesus you were circumcised. That means to have the foreskin of the male genitalia cut off. You all had that happen, but it was a circumcision made without hands. So it's it's not circumcision. It's something different. It's something new. It is the putting off of the body of flesh. If you think about removing the foreskin, it's putting off the body of flesh. This is the circumcision of Christ, which is not just the fact that he, in fact, was circumcised, but also what that shedding of his blood as an innocent victim for the sake of mankind meant as on the cross. He was pierced for our transgressions, wounded for our iniquities, and had the sin and shame of mankind cut off in him. You have received that, it says, buried with him in baptism, verse 12. One of the the funny things about arguments about baptism is that very rarely does a discussion about baptism with a a non-Lutheran or a non-Catholic rely on the Bible. It's kind of a strange thing. Whatever argument they have against baptizing infants, but this, but that, it's never what the Bible says. They might say, if they're really good, the Bible doesn't say. They'll say, you never see an infant baptized. Okay, so that amounts to the Bible doesn't say something. They never say the Bible says. So my favorite thing, if I can get them to listen long enough to have a conversation, say, okay, so do this for me. Like, just set aside the book of Acts until you're done with this study. Do this other study first and then go read Acts, okay? Because Acts just shows it happening. doesn't tell you what it does. Look up the word baptism everywhere in the New Testament and write out just the verse that mentions it. What does it say it does? And every time, it's going to be some mixture of kills you, raises you, forgives you. Every single time. Yeah, I've actually had people come up to me and say to me, like, I didn't think it said that. I was going to prove you wrong. And I went and I wrote them all out. And I don't know what to do. I, it's not what I thought it said. Huh? It's right here. Having been buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised with Christ through faith. Baptism is just a work. Where does the Bible say that? The Bible doesn't say baptism is a work. It says baptism is something that gives you faith. Sounds like a promise to me. You were raised through faith in what? My own work in baptism? No, the powerful working of God. That in baptism, he has buried me in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Again. This God who raised Jesus from the dead is not separate from Christ. Ah, let's do this one. Okay, so if you can get it through your head, baptism equals Jesus. There's no Jesus and then baptism, right? There, there, there's Jesus and he is baptism. Why? It was his idea. It's his word. He said, go baptize. It's his baptism. So again, those who don't like baptism and the idea that it's a promise for you that regenerates you into being born again, they don't think Jesus is baptism. And I suggest next time you're in a conversation, be like, well, can you show me in the Bible where it says that? 
And if you can remember Colossians 2, because I can show you where it says he is baptism. It's right there. All right, so verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses, like you're already dead and then he kills you. (laughs) You're dead in Adam and then he murders you with his own death. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision, the Greek word there is foreskin. You were dead in the trespasses and foreskin of your flesh. It's talking about your original sin there, right? The heart, which beats with selfishness. You who were that now, God made alive. You're alive now. God made you alive together with Jesus, having forgiven all your trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against you. Yeah, indeed. From the day you were born, an angel or something like that has followed you along with a book, writing down every thought and every word and every deed. And on the day of the great white throne judgment, those books will be opened and the dead will be judged according to them. And by their works, that is wicked ones, they will be cast into the fire. But then on that same day, I'm talking Revelation right now, on that same day, the book of life will be opened. And you will find your name written in the book of life. And so whatever it said in those other books, that record of debt that stands against you with its legal demands, you will see on that day it's been nailed to the cross in the body of Jesus. The fruit hanging on the tree of life. He nailed it to the cross. Told you to write it down. If you didn't, write it down now. He nailed it to the cross. What's it? Everything. Everything. When you see that phrase this week and you're like, oh, this, that, this. He nailed it to the cross. Yeah, but what about? He nailed it to the cross. I'm not sure if tomorrow's going to. He nailed it to the cross. It's a beautiful, beautiful phrase. Own it. Own it. Tattoo it on your heart. All right, so. Verse 15, in this, I said everything, he disarmed the RK and Exousia. Same words from earlier. You know, the, the powerful principalities that run this present darkness, they've been disarmed. Bible study last week, there were a bunch of questions about demons, and, and we talked about what we know, which is not very much. But like, the thing you need to know is they're disarmed. Jesus disarmed them. They can't get to you, except by one way. Lies. See to it that no one takes you captive with empty lies. They're disarmed. He nailed it to the cross. He put them to open shame. He triumphed over them in Christ. Therefore, verse 16, now we get to some of these specifics about what the Colossian Christians were beginning to think they had to do in order to be good people, good Christians. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, we know that because of the new moon and Sabbath statement there, this is about Judaizing tendencies, right? Meat bought at market that's been offered to idols. You can't do it or you'll go to hell. Actually, not true. Actually, not true. You got to worship on Saturday. It's when God said you have to worship. Actually, not true. If you don't keep a new moon festival, you can't have all the blessings of Israel. You don't hear that one very much. 
But somehow that was what was going on here. The new moon festivals were a huge part of Israelite worship and life and a huge part of their paganism too at a certain point. It doesn't really matter what the specific thing is though. What matters is that you don't be taken captive by things that claim to be the worship of God that are not the worship of God. And surely uh, the most evident of these things is going to be anybody who says, well, Christianity is about what you eat. Or Christianity is about which day you worship on. Or Christianity is about what you do at all, frankly, anything. It's not other than Jesus, right? Now, I said this when we were dealing with Romans 14. Let me be clear. Paul is not dismissing the Lord's Supper. Christianity is about eating the flesh and drinking the blood of the Son of God. Jesus says so, right? So don't pit Scripture against Scripture. Let Scripture understand Scripture. Paul is talking about rules we make up about what to eat. They have nothing to do with your soul, right? I mean, I'm pretty confident that if you're living on potato chips, getting off potato chips as your permanent diet is going to improve your health. But it's not going to affect your soul. It won't. It can't. That's the point. That's the point. He's going to say it again in a moment, so we'll come back to it. These, he says, the Old Testament things in verse 16, are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So when it comes to the Old Testament rules and rituals, it's not that there isn't wisdom in them. And in fact, the Jewish Christians maintained many of them. It's that the substance is Jesus. What's the Passover about? Jesus Christ. What was the new moon festival about? Jesus Christ. What's the throne of David about? Jesus Christ. What was the blood offering of the goat for this and that and this? Jesus Christ is what it's about. And now that the fullness has come, the new wineskin of Jesus has come, the old wineskins are no longer able to hold it. And so is there much wisdom in the Old Testament? Yes. But that wisdom is the ability to see that Jesus Christ is the God of the universe. Huh? So then, verse 18, it says, you, see to it. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. That means hard treatment of your body. Insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Going on in detail about visions. Puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. And not holding fast to the head. Basically, it, it means don't listen to people who make stuff up and say God said it. Don't. Turn it off. Shut it down. How would you know? You got to read it yourself. Got to study it yourself. Got to know what it says so that they don't disqualify you. So that they don't take your crown. Now, again, insisting on asceticism, that's going to be saying that it's about how you treat your body. I mean, these days, it's less about you know fasting and living in a cave and more about uh, being a vegan and sitting on a hillside meditating. Oh, it looks so spiritual. That's the point. Is it looks spiritual. But it cannot change your soul in God's sight. Yeah? 
Worship of angels? Uh, I, don't, I don't know what to do with this one. In fact, the scholars don't quite know what to do with this one. Certainly in the Gnostic Greek religions, they got really into kind of understanding the orders of the heavens and learning lists about angels and powers and things like that. There was a Jewish cultic element that did that as well. I think more important is this bit about going on in detail about visions. Again, that just means making stuff up. And the Greek there is a little difficult, but it's, it's, it's bursting into what they have not seen, right? Claiming things that they haven't really seen. Don't be disqualified by that. And then puffed up with reason and the fleshly mind, right? Basically just trying to build themselves up trying to feel better and stronger than other people around them, as opposed to verse 19, holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. So verse 20, if with Christ, let's say since, if and since are the same word in Greek And because he just said that what he's going to say if about is true about you, let's assume it's since. It's true. Since with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Remember how I started this morning. Do you have to? The, the, The problem is not that you might do something. The problem is that you would live as if you have to. You don't have to. You don't have to go through chemo. You don't have to try to live your best life now and be rich. You don't have to be healthy. You don't have to be, certainly, perfect. You don't have to relax. You don't even have to like your life. Jesus is pretty clear. He who loses his life will find it. You don't have to. He nailed it to the cross. It doesn't mean you won't. It doesn't mean you can't. But why live as though you have to? Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. Verse 21. Interesting. Uh, Do not handle. It, It means do not kindle. Like don't light it. I don't know why they translated it as handle, but do not kindle it. Do not taste it. Do not touch it. All referring to rules about things that perish as they're used. The value of the present age, the only value it has is that it perishes as it's used, right? So again, uh, imagine the best meal you can imagine. I don't care if it's healthy or if it's sick. You pick, you pick, okay? But it's, it's like, it's not cheap. It's a good meal. You sit down, and 20 minutes later, what's the value of that meal? Well, is that it perished while well, you used it, right? Like, you ate it. Where is it now? Well, it's, it's gone. Is it coming back? Nope. Well, <laughs> tomorrow morning, maybe a little bit. But, but you know, uh, not really. Okay. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. It perishes with its use. It isn't that you aren't going to eat. It's you're not going to eat as if it has something to do with your religion. And being free of conscience and free of mind in this way will make you not merely face what you eat this way. It's everything. So when someone comes up to you and says, how dare you think that? Well, because the Bible says so. That's how dare I. You don't get moved by the lies. 
You don't get bent by the twisting. You're able to distinguish between what is good for the body and what is good for the soul. According to human precepts and wisdom, again, verse 23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, that's the treatment of the body, severity to the body, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You can't stop your selfishness by doing yoga. In fact, they're going to teach you to be selfish when they teach you yoga. Does that mean you can't stretch and breathe? You can stretch and breathe, it's fine. But it's not going to stop your selfishness. Right? Um, self-made religion, that, that's uh, very important to kind of dwell on for a second. What you find in anything that takes away from the Bible's teaching about our life together in Christ, anything that picks pieces off, usually has some value of me getting to choose what I think God wants. Right? So uh, again, I'll go out on a limb here. Um, I've run into a number of these conversations in my lifetime as a pastor where I'm teaching on a text of the Bible, say Psalm 127 or maybe Titus chapter 2. And it says something along the lines of how uh, God desires that we would get married and have kids as a general rule. And I'll have a lady stand up and say to me, but what about those women who God hasn't called to have kids? And I say, which ones? Because, of course, there are some people who are barren, and that would indeed mean that they've not been given kids. But that's never who she's talking about. She says, what about those women who just need to do something else with their life? Self-chosen religion. God tells us who we are. He tells us what the good works are. And the good works are simple. They're clear. Do not murder. Don't change marriage. Don't lie. Don't steal. Learn to be content. Come to church. Pray. You have a God. That's it. Not that tough. So don't let anyone disqualify you with whatever nonsense they want to build up that takes away from that, especially when and if it causes them to reject the fact that it's all been nailed to the cross. The reason I know to love my neighbor isn't because I'm so good. It's because Jesus is so good. He's been so good to me. He's shown me that if I hurt my neighbor, it hurts all, me and everyone else. He's shown me that mercy triumphs over sacrifice. He's shown me that forgiveness is substantially powerful enough to change a heart because it changed mine. It doesn't mean that the flesh of selfishness is no longer here, but it means I can call it the liar that it is. And I can hear him saying, come unto me, ye weary ones, and I'll give you rest. And then I get to hear him saying that rest is you get to love others now. You get to see truly now. Yep, it's all burning down. Yep, they're coming with armies. Yep, they're going to destroy you. And you get to walk straight through it. 
knowing that the powers, the principalities, the present darkness, it's all been bound, tied down, and thrown into the grave, that even as I fall into it, only is my resting place, wherein I will burst forth again. That's the gospel for you. That's the truth for us. That's who we are. And Paul cares deeply that we be established in this. Don't let anyone take your crown. In the name of Jesus. Amen.